<laughs> We've got Chris Kahi with us. I'm so darn excited right now. actually just recorded this opening and i've already messed it up and so we're recording it again so if you're not, if you're noticing the sense of <laughs> exasperation and frustration already well that's because it's already happened so chris and i have had an incredibly bad run in trying to disconnect he's got his weekend and i've got like uh well i mean weekends the monday for me so well sunday or monday is usually where we're trying to do it and it's it's just uh, like man, it's a vortex of chaos and destruction usually, and we can't really <laughs> seem to get it right. But it's just special, man. When we connect, it's good. You know, we've got something. It's very good. And uh, to celebrate, what we're going to do is uh, just kind of have a little celebration for Kleinian super nerds, um, because <laughs> there is only one group on planet Earth that are actually going to care about what we're talking about uh, right now. But uh, riveting stuff if you do. But you might remember from three months ago, or, or I think I, I maybe did one recap after that at some point. But basically, like three months ago, we recorded um, uh, some, some, just some, we're just reading through Klein's uh, letter to the faculty just on multi perspectivalism and making just a few random comments along the way. Um, and uh, we got kind of like, I don't know, maybe halfway, not even. And uh, then just kind of didn't do any more. So now we're going to start that up again. As I was just saying earlier, before I had to re-record this, uh, we thought we'd just throw in three months break just to <laughs> let everything that we did before cool down because it was way too easy. So it's, it's this article, Klein's writing style, as you know, is, is tedious. It's so easy. Um, and so we just thought a little bit of time will make it more difficult to track with what's going on here. So hopefully that's working. Hopefully that's right. Good. Let's make it challenging. Challenging. And yeah, there we go. Now, on a serious note, though, it is a really important article. And I've, you know, just in, <laughs> because of we've, we've tried to record these things so many times, uh, I've read through the article a few times now, probably more than I would have otherwise. And um, it's... Uh, yeah, I just every time I go through it, I'm like, you know what? This is such a sharp article. It's so amazing. Uh, or a letter, I suppose. But it's just I love the way he gets to the heart of it. And I said that before, but I just appreciate it further every time I read it. I mean, he just really does cut to the chase. You see the whole Westminster faculty just kind of bobbing around and, you know, just kind of wondering, OK, well, what's going on here? What's happening with the anomie? And you know, uh, oh, wow, look at the multi-perspectival thing. And, you know, you can you can almost imagine what it would have been like, you know. And uh, mm. Klein's like, dude, no ways. This is what's going on. It's not a, it's not a you know, a spectrum thing. Uh, he, he just refuses to be put on a, uh, on this um, a continuum or spectrum with, with Manson in any way, shape or form uh, via the multi-perspectival lens. So, you know, he just wants to make sure everyone understands that really you're dealing with a, you know, a totally different viewpoint. And the way that he portrays it is just, I don't know, it's it's amazing. So hopefully we can bring some of that out as we uh, as we read uh, read some more. Um, so we're kind of at uh, more or less anyway um, at this uh, part in the article that starts to just zone into where the debate lies, which is what I'm excited about. So what we'll do is just go ahead and read it and make some comments. What do you reckon, Chris? I like it. All Sounds right. like a plan. 
Let's get into this thing. All right. Everything he says, and by the way, I don't even know what page number I'm on, so just just search. You know, press the little, what do you press? Command F, <laughs> and then just go everything, and then it'll take you past, like, the, the angel adver- advertising on Klein's website and, uh, <laughs> and get you straight to where where you're supposed to be there. But everything depends then on Frame's original biblical theological assumption concerning the relationships of the covenants and the nature of their stipulated institutions. Uh, We can debate whether such a covenantal theology as his is correct, congenial as it is to the theonomous view, but impervious to Klein's view of the controverted matters, or whether Klein's biblical theological analysis of the covenants is true to the scriptures. But meanwhile, and yeah, I think is the point, meanwhile, it must be recognized that this is where the issue lies. In the opposing biblical theological conclusions concerning such concepts as theocracy. Does it say holy and typology there, or have I got a typo here? No, that's what it says. Theocracy, holy, and typology. Okay, right, got it. Uh, This is not a red herring, as Frame has suggested. If there is anything in the discussion that would lead it down a false track, it is the identification of the issue with the question of whether either side affirms total continuity or total discontinuity between the Mosaic law as a whole and what preceded it as fo- and follows it. Of course, nobody does either. So maybe just stop there for a second. Or let's read to the end of the paragraph. Uh, the issue is the biblical theological one, or is a biblical theological one, as to the nature and functions of the institutions defined by the divine covenants, especially the Israelite theocracy. And the differences between Theonomist and Klein and other Reformed critics are not matters of degree, but of mutually exclusive understandings of what are and what are not the functions of theocracy in common state. The differences are solidly substantial and radically oppositional. They involve two distinct versions of Christianity. So there it is, right? Um, so I think, as I was sort of indicating uh, a little bit earlier, I think this is kind of the whole point of the article, um, or, or at the heart of it anyway, because he's not, he's kind of saying, and he mentions a few times, you know, I've got my whole kingdom prologue, as it were, to to show you where I'm coming from and why frames wrong. And mm-hmm. uh, it's not really the goal of the article to to lay that out at this point, but um, you know, just to bring everyone to understand exactly where he ended off with. With it. it's you know, as much as frame and as much as Poitras would want to indicate some sort of um, um, spectrum of views and. You know, clients on the one end and bonds and on the other. Um, that's just not at the case. That's not the case at all. There's two different versions of Christianity completely, which is a really forceful way to say it. Uh, any thoughts come to mind uh, for you there, Chris? Well, he's really digging his heels in in this tug of war between himself and Frame, mm. um, and he's refusing to give an inch to uh, Frame's perspectivalism that would say that Klein has one perspective. We'll just we'll say the normative perspective yeah. and yeah. Bonson has the, you know, situational perspective and they just have different perspectives on exactly the same thing. And Klein is saying, absolutely not. No. Um, yeah. We have completely different ways of reading the Bible. And like he said, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. And um, I think someone must have accused, I, I putting this together, I think probably what, uh, he does say that Frame himself had suggested that it probably would have been a, a red herring to think who's right and who's wrong, you know, and probably would have mm-hmm. argued, as you've just said, to see it sort of with different perspectives. And he's saying, well, if anything, that's the red herring, um, you know, moving along <laughs> right. a, a sort of a, a false 
um, well, a, a methodology. I mean, toward the end of the uh, toward the end of the paper, he's just saying, "Listen, is this a legit form of theology at all? You know, we need to as custodians of the Reformed tradition look into this. This is not a, a valid way of doing theology in any in any way." So he's going, "If anything, let's not take, be taken down that track." Um, because that's just going to keep things going in a round and round direction. So anyways, helping helping them come to this uh, this pointed look at the whole issue. Um, all right, cool. So the next next paragraph, we focus now on the Poitras tapes. I love that. That sounds super scandalous. That's like <laughs> the Poitras tapes. <laughs> you just you want to get a hold of those tapes. Um, right. In keeping with my comments above, uh, I of course reject the suggestion that the difference between Theonomic politics and Klein's view is simply that one or the other is relatively closer or farther from the normative or situational poles of a perspectival axis. It is rather a matter um, if, is that of or if? Have I got a typo there? It is rather a matter if completely oh. contradicting. So it sounds like an of there, right? Uh, it is rather a matter of completely contradicting one another when Theonomists assert and Klein denies that the theocratic function of enforcing the faith by the sword is a function of the common state. It is not that one side stresses the normative more than the other, uh, sorry, and the other, the situational more. It is rather that they differ absolutely with the absoluteness of the difference between yes and no on what the norm is. More precisely, they differ on the situational content of the norm. And so that's interesting. What do you think about that, that uh, paragraph? Yeah, I mean, he's putting his finger right on the issue. Um, and uh, this is exactly why at the end of the paper, he questions whether perspectivalism is even a legitimate form of, yeah. of doing theology. Yeah, and the rest of it kind of breaks that down. I mean, he's he's saying, listen, you've got, you know, you, you, uh, I love what he, uh, I think it was a little bit later where he talks about, uh, um, it's sort of, you end up with a noumenal version of the normative. Does he say that in the paper? He must. I wouldn't have come up with that by myself. I think, I think it's so. coming up. Um, but yeah, just the kind of like you can't actually access what the norm is, you know, um, because you've decided your own situational, you know, you, you're not letting the Bible itself uh, be the situ situational kind of determiner. Um, and I think that's great. Um, and so, again, what he says here is that, you know, it's he's not even trying to stress the normative more or one thing uh you know the situational more he he's basically saying listen year is the situation year is the norm uh this is this is how to interpret both um mm -hmm. and and that's totally different from from if anything this kind of uh this um what do you call it like a, a leading into a relativization of the norm i mean you end up just with with um, with frame system there, it's it's it, you know if you can at some point go from no no state coercion into you know state coercion on religious matters, um, sheesh, that's crazy. You know that's like you've you, you've got a lot of wiggle room there. What what was the thing that allowed you to do that? You know, you've just taken these right. equi equitable principles and you've just done whatever you want with them based on what you feel the situational norm uh, situational uh, requires of the norm. So it's just I don't know. I find that absolutely crazy. And so he's obviously just just rallying against that. Um, uh, yes or no? All right. It is utterly misleading to suggest that my intrusion concept is in the slightest degree further distanced than the theonomic view from normativeness with its connotation of authoritative standard, either in principle or in emphasis. 
I see the Mosaic Law as institutionally specific, as defining the governmental province of a theocracy. And I see the civil magistrate as defined in other biblical revelation as non-theocratic. Hence, I do not simplistically regard the state as possessing all the functions that are assigned by the Mosaic Law to theocratic Israel. My interpretation of biblical norms thus differs from that of the theonomists, but that is uh, what is involved, a different interpretation of the content of the norm, not a lesser recognition on my part of some normativeness abstractly distinguished from a situational aspect. So that was a real mouthful of lyrics first time I uh, I read through that because it requires you to understand what frame and them are saying, you know, with their whole triperspectivalism thing and, mm-hmm. you know, what Klein is saying. So it's quite a point of intersection there. Um, this goes back to the sentence in the... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you there. No, go for it. Yeah. This goes back to the sentence in the previous paragraph where he says... It's rather that they differ absolutely with the absoluteness of the difference between yes and no mm. on what the norm is. And um, I mean, I, I don't mean to be uh, crass, but it's it's kind of like the idea of being kind of pregnant. Right. Klein is saying there's no such thing. Yes. You either are or you are not. And Frame is trying to say that you can be kind of pregnant. Mm. Mm, totally. Yeah, exactly. So uh, and the. You know, with that in mind, that's a great point to move on to this next uh, paragraph from what I remember here. Um, so let's let's do that straight away. Uh, parenthetically, he says, if we are to speak of a tendency towards subjective situationalist ethics, kind of what you were saying there, uh, then curiously it's found not in, in intrusion ethics, but in theonomic politics. Why did they think that, because um, they must have leveled that at some point, you know, that the intrus- intrusion ethics thing is subjectivist. Oh, yeah. So I think, you know, since the theonomist views the Mosaic law as really timeless, um, yes, okay. applicable at all times and in all places, um, when Klein says, no, that's not the case, it's just that when we look at, say, Abraham's situation and, um, you know, God destroys Sodom with fire, hmm. that was an example of intrusion ethics. Mm-hmm. because it was a common grace ethic um, and he would say we're we're living in a very similar situation to Abraham where we're to live at peace with our neighbors um, and the theonomist hears oh well you can just apply willy-nilly yeah which laws you want okay right yeah that makes sense totally yeah um, okay so it has less to do with uh, what God was doing in judgment right uh, or because I mean, right. I, we we would you know with the sub with a um, uh, what is it called the intrusion ethic thing, um, we're seeing it's not like we don't have access to, well it's 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 an eschatological sort of ethic so to speak. It's what God was doing and will do ultimately at the end in heaven and hell, right? That's the. It's not like there's a different ethic involved. It's just we're saying that 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 that. Um, that final judgment comes crashing into the present. Have I missed something there? Exactly. That's good, right? Final so, I mean, judgment that, is breaking that, into history ahead of time. Breaking into history, but it's still 100%. Like, it's not like we're playing around with, you know, wh- what what God will do morally. I mean, there is a consistent morality to that. It's just that it's, correct. you know, everything delayed is, is basically not delayed at that point. Um, so, yeah. Okay, good. Um, all right. So, we were, uh, according to the former... Um, the norms of the several institutionally specific bodies of the law remain 
um, or of law remain fixed in their application to these institutions. But theonomists, like dispensationalists, without biblical warrant, impose distinctions within the course of a given historical epoch of an institution, um, distinctions that result in changing norms of conduct. Right. Good. I think I understand that. So I think what he's getting at is that even though they want to be applying the Mosaic law in exhaustive detail, Mm -hmm. say in the, I mean, Bonson was writing in the American context, Mm -hmm. um, they're still going to make little tweaks here and there to accommodate the situation that we actually find ourselves living in. Right. And Klein is saying, look, you either have to stick to principle or, or don't, but pick one. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah, totally. Okay. So where do the dispensationalists do that? That's a good question. Um, He's trying to... Theonomists like dispensationalists without biblical warrant impose distinctions within the course of a given historical epoch of an institution. So the institution would be Israel itself, right? Right. Um, Within a given historical epoch, the thing that comes to mind for dispensationalists might be um, that they look at some of Jesus's um, ethical teaching and say, say, well, that's actually still within the Mosaic covenant. He's not actually talking to us. Okay, cool. Um, Thus it is suggested among theonomists that a demographic shift in a state from an unbeliever to a believer-dominant population signalizes a change of norms with respect to the supposed state function of suppressing false religions. (laughs) That's like, that's the craziest thing. But anyways, there it is. Um, Like the way he's saying thus it is suggested, I'm just wondering if there's something similar that I'm missing here with with, uh, dispensationalist thinking. You know, maybe it's it's something to do Um, with like Israel in majority or something with with the parenthetical edge. But anyways, I'll leave that alone. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like something's at the tip of my tongue there. But um, okay, so what's he saying there? He's saying um, theonomists are basically taking this, um, this, this supposedly consistent moral code, but they're going, all right, you know, as soon as we have a, um, you know, the only reason we're not applying it a certain way now is because we have an unbeliever dominated population, right? Uh, as soon as that changes, right. we've got a different way to go. Exactly. Okay. Uh, cool. Quite apart from the theonomy issue, I have misgivings about an analysis of the ethical picture that coordinates the situational with the normative. Oh, yeah, I like this one. All right. The impression given is that the norm is uh, uh, is some non-particular, situationally undefined, abstract generality, and that when it comes to developing concrete meaning in the application of this abstract norm, we are on our own without normative direction as to how to factor in the situation and so determine our ethical duty. Uh, If that is not what is going on in this multi-perspectival analysis, then what sense does it make for Poitras to suggest that Klein stands closer than Bonson to the situational ethics people, even if only formally? All right, so leaving aside that last little sentence there, um, what's he saying there, Chris? Um... I think he's Sorry, saying that the way that the frame is playing with those two perspectives, the normative and the situational, allow him to do all kind of all kinds of mischief with mm. um, ethics and right. um, 
so I think he's going to argue that um, an analysis of the covenantal situation is the right way to understand ethics, right? Not some so, philosophically and, abstract notions. Yes, yes. And and so if I'm reading him right, though, just to and I realize we kind of mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but just to make sure I'm getting this right, um, he's basically saying that you're, you've got fine, you've got the norm of God's law. Um, but in terms of understanding the way that that applies, we're not left to our own to just figure out if we have a believing population or unbelieving majority population and then, you know, come up with the corresponding, you know, fairly subjective uh, application there. Rather, the, the, the approach is to go, all right, well, what is going on in that particular? The situation itself is redemptive history. Um, and right. that situation, you know, is a unique mosaic theocracy, which determines how that, that norm, that law gets applied. And, you know, that's it. That's, the, and that's the, from that situation and, and norm together, we're, we're then able to figure out what our duty is in the new covenant, but, but we're not able to do it apart. We're not supposed to simply create our own uh, situation, so to speak. Uh, does that sound right? Yes, and if you'll um, allow me to uh, say just a little bit more about this, yeah, totally. uh, this this ties in really well with some conversations that I had uh, at seminary about preaching, okay, and um, the difference between the then and the now. Mm. And Klein is saying that uh, Frame, Poitras, and the Theonomists have a then of. Uh, I guess biblical times when the Bible was written, and the now of you know when we live modernity, right? Post modernity, um, and he's saying no. The then um, of the Bible is the then of the old covenant, and the now is the now of the new covenant. Wow! You need to be fi- you, you need to be looking at covenant history and pinpointing where you are on that historical line, and figuring out how your point on that historical line relates to all the other points on the historical line. Mm. Does that make sense? Oh, man, totally. Yeah, and that's exactly what I read him saying here. And I love that point for preaching. I mean, that's absolutely massive. I mean, so much of the trouble comes from not doing that, (laughs) you know. Um, (laughs) Oh, before we go on, I just wanted to ask, what what is... um, uh, what do you think he's going on about here? Then uh, what sense does it make for Poitras to suggest that client stands closer to Bonson on the situation ethics pe- to the situation ethics people, even if only formally? Oh, so, I mean, there was a, I don't know if it was the 60s or, or the 70s, but somebody had written a book on situational ethics. Um, and I haven't read the book, but mm. um, my understanding is that it's very relativistic. Okay. Um, and so it sounds like, Poitras was trying to accuse Klein of relativism because of the um, what we said before intrusion ethics. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Good. Um, all right. Next paragraph. He says, um, "I submit that the situational must be subordinated to the normative, not coordinated with it." So there's a helpful way to say it. Um, that is, the situation is. Amen. Yeah. That is, uh, the situation is part of the original content or meaning of the biblical norm itself. Oh, I like that too. That's good. 
the norms are situationally concrete. Ooh, I like that even better. Man, that's three good sentences in a row. And they're all so brief. Look how short those sentences are, right. Chris. What's going on? No hyphens or anything. No hyphens, super short. I mean, that's quotable for crying out loud. You could quote that. The norms are situationally concrete. Uh, still be a bit of a nerdy quote, but a quote nevertheless. All right. In applying them, we must determine whether a particular existential situation belongs to the situational category envisaged in the norm, but in so doing, we do not add to the meaning of the norm or modify the norm in any way. If, however, the situational is coordinated with the normative, the inevitable result would be to see, uh, sorry, would seem to be that uninspired situational meaning gets infused into the inspired, but hitherto abstract biblical norm in the fallible act of application. Um, yeah. Okay. Amazingly, I understand what he's saying there. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's, it's just kind of what we've been saying. Um, exactly what you just mentioned in terms of that preaching thing. Um, or is there anything new there, Chris? No, no. Okay, good. Awesome. Uh, and he says, this looks like a giant step towards the erosion of the canonical character of scripture as our only infallible rule of faith and practice. One's impression that such a step is being taken is strengthened when one observes that the situational perspective and the normative perspective are polarized. Uh, that takes place when Poitras, in his analysis, concludes that Klein's distinction, uh, intrusion, okay, so back on the intrusion thing, um, uh, distinction, intrusion view of the situational element involves a movement away from the normative or that Bonson's rhetoric about the unchanging nature of the normative represents a move away from the situational pole. By using these two perspectives as a means of defining the opposite between Bonson and Klein, Poitras polarizes the norm and the situation. In the context of this polarization, the norm loses normativeness to the extent that it is applied, um, that is, to the extent that it, that it takes on situational content. All right, so more of the same there, I think. But um, yeah, anything Absolutely. else you wanted to come in on that? Um, no, I mean, again, I feel like I'd be beating a dead yeah, horse totally. if I did. For sure. All right, cool. Uh, the concept of absolutely authoritative biblical law thus becomes a veil. Here's the sentence that I was thinking. Uh, the concept of absolutely authoritative biblical law thus becomes a vacant numinal abstraction. But doom. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so it's like, I, that's the whole, uh, so, you know, the numinal thing, I'm thinking in, in like a Kantian sense, right? So basically, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you, can't, you can't get at the actual thing itself. Brilliant. I love that. That's great. Um, in so our he's con- saying that. Yeah. Sorry. Go for it. So, I mean, he's saying, if you're not familiar with Kant's numinal phenomenal distinction, mm. Kant said that, um, you know, there's this whole realm of either ideas or truths or things in this numinal realm and we simply don't have access to them we only have access to the phenomenal realm yeah and i've heard it explained like having jars and there's stuff in the jar mm. but you don't really know what it is you just put a label on it and you say this is um tree leaf or this is green or you know you, you're just yeah. putting labels on the jars and so klein is saying that the way that um the theonomists and poitras are treating uh the authoritative uh, biblical law is as this thing that we don't ha- actually have access to. Mm. We only have access to the situation. And so we're just trying to um, come up with our situational jars that have biblical law in them mm. and put labels on those. It's crazy because I think it's so much more amplified as well in, 
in the way that the client does understand law revealed concretely in their uh, covenantal enshrinements, you know, um, like yes. we, we don't, I mean, it, to some extent, it's true that we don't have access to the abstract uh, law of God, but by these covenantal enshrinements. So to take away the covenantal enshrinement is to, you know, or to mess around with the situational is really to take away that enshrinement is what he's saying. And so yes, give us literally absolutely. no access, which is, you know, probably they're not thinking about it so sharply and, and, and you know, to their own demise, I think, because, um, you know, I think part of the Reformed theology thing with, with its view of the law has, it's almost, it's almost done this to some degree already in that, you know, if you're able to just divide the covenant in however many pieces you want randomly and, you know, and just kind of you take an equitable principle year and you take one there and you just kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's always been a bit of a problem I've had with, with uh, the reformed view of the law. And so, you know, mm. Klein's view really helped me on that, but you could see how it would be less of a thing for them to do this. And, and once you've landed on Klein's view, it's just, it's just completely, you know, anathema because you're messing around with the only way we have to know God's law in, 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 in reality. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen. But I, I love that sentence. It's great. Um, Cool. In our consideration, he says, of theonomy, the issue of multi-perspectivalism has confronted us, posing for us a more fundamental and difficult theological problem than theonomy. Boom. As argued above. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dude, uh, adoption of the multi-perspectival method introduced tensions within a theology that would simultaneously confess the orthodox doctrine of Scripture. Uh, to me, it is also a cause of concern that those who are given to this method are prone, as I perceive it, in spite of their protestations to the contrary, to view antithetical positions as merely differing but compatible emphases. Um, Amen. Yeah, <laughs> we've talked about that before, and uh, that's definitely true. It's it's kind of funny. It's true to the point of being kind of funny in, in that if you go and read all <laughs> the articles, you like, let me guess how this is going to go. And uh, truly... It, it, <laughs> It goes exactly in that direction. Um, all right, yeah. just okay. We've got one more paragraph. Let's kill this thing. Um, one sec, just lost my place. All right, um, uh, antithetical. Okay, this is what is done by both Poitras and Frame in their assessments of the antithetical positions in the theonomy debate. I have to wonder too if it is not due to his multi-perspectival cast of thought that Frame, working in the biblical theological area blurs the differences between theocracy and common state. Poitras comes to a more satisfactory biblical theological conclusions, but there is uh, a tension, then a tension, within his overall presentation between his biblical theological stance and his multi-perspectival analysis of the principles in the controversy. Significantly, Frame introduces the conflict over Norman Shepard's theology. Oh, no, he didn't. He said it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you knew Shepard was going to get dragged into this at some point. Uh, <laughs> Shepard's yep. theology, Westminster in Philadelphia, in his discussion of the theocracy problem, as he argues uh, that Klein and Bonson are not so far apart. Let's keep the picture fuzzy. Uh, that's that's the article that I went hunting for on John Frame's computer. Uh, like a profound moment. And you got me. it. I got it too. I got like the only copy. <laughs> I don't think anyone I don't think anyone has it, uh, except for those digitals that I will then give. I will distribute to the world. Um, all right. There was a case where the contested teaching involved a contradiction of the heart of the gospel, yet it was perceived through multi-perspectival lenses as nothing more than, sorry, it's changing page, nothing more than a difference in emphasis or at worst, 
as a deviation within allowable tolerances. Man, mm. uh, perhaps some of these readings of the situation can be shown to be erroneous and satisfactory conclusions offered for apparent problems. But it does appear that if we are to be responsible guardians of reformed orthodoxy, we must add to our agenda of study and discussion a scrutiny of multi-perspectivalism. Uh, is it an acceptable method of doing theology? And that's where the point of intersection lies between the method of perspectivalism and this issue of theonomy and and um, and how really Frame just opened that can of worms. I mean, at least uh, well, Klein opened that can of worms on top of the other can of worms and said, let's just dig a little deeper on that issue as well. So Timothy Miller's um, whole thesis um, uh, dissertation put out by PNR um, basically answers that last question. You know, he, he quotes Klein and he says, all right, my whole dissertation is going to be to answer if this is an acceptable method of doing theology. But it sounded like he was pretty Framian, you know, already. And, uh, and okay. So he wanted to answer the question with a yes. He wanted a, a yes, but it needed to be tweaked in some significant ways. So basically, he was just saying, okay. he didn't really, I don't think he would satisfy Klein at all. But he says, you know, by the way, these are the problems that I found. And it was more to do with the issue of, you know, we need to do some, we have to have some way to subordinate. Um, you know, can't, the equal ultimacy thing's a problem, you know, he said. And so he wanted to mm -hmm. subordinate those ideas via the Trinity. And <laughs> I think he just kind of got into more trouble than, than, right. uh, than, you know, if he had left it alone. So it was, it was, it was an answer of sorts, but definitely it, it wouldn't have solved what, what Klein's saying here at all. Um, so anyways, for what that's worth. But there it is. There's the whole article. I feel a sense of accomplishment. That was good. I'm glad we worked through that one. Yeah, totally. It's more like uh, reading with random comments. There was no work. It was, uh, <laughs> it, Klein did the work. We just, uh, what I like about it, though, is that for people that aren't um, reading Klein at all, you know, you get a little bit of a, to actually just go ahead and read some of his journal, journal articles is, is helpful in that, you know, he, they just get to hear a bit of Klein himself and, and uh, it it's kind of feels a bit random when you do that with a big book, you know. Uh, you can't necessarily read the text because it's just too big. And how do you even start? Where do you even go? Um, but this mm -hmm. just gives you a way to kind of, you know, get people listening to Klein himself. Nick and I are doing that with um, with uh, the Church Fathers on Friday. So that's pretty awesome. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, same sort of thing. We're just dipping into some actual text and checking it out. Been Been very cool. Um, but man, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. After after all of that, good to have you back, man. <laughs> thanks. It's you, good to be back. You complete me. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy talking with you. So all right. thanks for having me on. All right. Cheers, brother. Mm -hmm.